In our gospel reading that we just heard, we are told that after Jesus' birth, wise men come from the east. Now, we don't know exactly where they're coming from. There's a variety of opinions. Some argue that they're coming from modern-day Iran, which would make them Persians. Some say from modern-day Iraq, so maybe Babylon or Baghdad. Some argue they're coming from Saudi Arabia. We don't know exactly where they're coming from, but we do know why they have come. They have come to pay homage to the Christ. In fact, in the, the passage we just heard, there's, there's 12 verses. And in those 12 verses, three times that word shows up, the word homage. Matthew wants us to know that the wise men come to pay homage to the Christ. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at Mary, and we talked about the fact that Mary is a model for us in the life of faith. And today, we have another model for us. The wise men are a model for us. Matthew wants us to see them uh, and, and to learn from them and to see what a faithful response to Christ looks like. Uh, and it's interesting, Matthew does uh, something very similar to what Jesus does in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember that parable, uh, Jesus uses the character of the priest and the character of the Levite to illuminate or accentuate the good response of the Good Samaritan. And Matthew does very much the same thing here. Matthew uses the response of King Herod and the response of the religious elite to illuminate the response, the good response of the wise men. So this morning what I want to do quite simply is look at those three responses, the responses to Christ. I want to look first at King Herod's response to the Christ, then look at the religious elite's response to the Christ, and then lastly, we'll look at the wise men's response to Christ, all so that we can learn how we are to faithfully respond to him. So again, Herod, then the religious elite, then the wise men. So let's start with Herod. Now, I think it would be a, a mistake to see Herod solely as the villain in the Gospels and even in this passage. Instead, what we need to see is that Herod represents in this passage every man and every woman. Herod embodies our response when we learn that we're not the center of the universe, that someone else other than ourselves, is at the center. William Barclay, a commentator, says that Herod's response is the response of anyone and everyone who wants to do only what he or she likes to do. There is, I, I think, this default position of the human heart where we see ourselves at the center of things. We, we just, we tend to do this. I mean, we we see it from the earliest age with children. We put ourselves at the center of things. And, and with everyone else, we so often see them as little pawns or extras in our little drama. This is our default position. And so when someone comes and declares that there's a new king, 
a new center, there is, if not outright hostility, there is at least the desire to, to check this out and hopefully dismiss the claim. And that's what Herod does. Now when we believe in the Christ, when we become Christians, it's not as if we suddenly become immune to this. No, in fact, we struggle with this. We continue to struggle with this. And in a lot of ways, we act like Herod. Even though we might know Christ is at the center of things, we still struggle and push against it. So often, even in our relationship with Christ, we see ourselves at the center. There was a wonderful uh, article in Christianity Today a number of years ago where the author talks about this. And he's, he argues one of the main ways that we do this is that we turn Christ into a brand. He says we turn the logos into a logo. Let me, let me read this to you. I thought it was very good about how we maintain um, ourselves at the center, even our, in our relationship with Christ. He says, when you flip through a magazine, you will discover that the best advertisements are those that convince us that their product will help us express and enhance who we are. Their product offers a lifestyle that fits with your lifestyle. He says, commercial brands do nothing to upset the fundamental claim of self-centeredness. In fact, they depend on it. We pay for the privilege of associating and adorning ourselves with particular brands because we like what they do for us. The brands, in turn, are happy to take our money. Then he says, as spiritual consumers, we will tend to approach the church with the same narcissism by demanding that the church provide those things that will enhance us. We ask, how will the Christian brand help me realize the vision I have for myself? And he ends by, by writing, the theological implication is that I belong to myself. I am my own project. And Christ and the church are there to enhance that project. Now, the, the ironic thing is that it is true that the gospel enhances our status enormously. But if, if that is what you are seeking, you will miss it. Because the first thing that we hear from Christ is that we are to come and die to self. That we are to surrender our kingdom, hand it over to Christ, and to realize that we are actually not at the center of everything. And only when we do this can we be reborn into sons and daughters of God. But you see, surrendering our kingdom, it, it is not an easy thing. And we push back, just like Herod did. And so we have to be intentional and watch this. You know, the claim uh, that Jesus is born king, king of the Jews, it's so interesting that this title does not show up again in Matthew's gospel until chapter 27 when they crucify Jesus. And at that point, if you remember, he's on the cross and they have a sign over him that says, King of the Jews. Right? Hostility 
is one of the responses to Jesus, to the one who comes and says, I'm the king, I'm at the center of things. So that's the response of Herod, hostility. Now the second response that we see is the response of the religious elite. We are told in the passage that when Herod hears about uh, Jesus, he's frightened, he's disturbed, and he calls together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquires where the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, is to be born. And the religious elite, they tell him that the new king is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea because the prophets have foretold this. So here you have the religious elite. They, they know the right answers. They are acquainted with God's word but they do not respond accordingly. Even though they tell Herod about the Messiah, they make no effort to join the wise men as they seek for the child. You see, their response, it's different than Herod, their response is the response of indifference, of being complacent. I, I think this response is the most tempting for us. For us here, for us watching at home, uh, for us church people, to hear the word, but to not recognize the reality that the word describes. In fact, I think this is especially dangerous for us professional Christians, us clergy. When we, when we lead worship, when we pray with others, we do it so often that we can say the right words and yet not be in touch with the one to whom the words refer to. And being a, a liturgical church, I think uh, we're even more prone to this. We're prone to it because you know, the words that we pray, they, they are so good. And we can speak them so smoothly that we can forget to see the reality behind these words. I can remember a few years after I was ordained um, it was during a service, and I was distributing communion, and an older gentleman came to the altar rail to, to receive. And when he put out his hands to receive, his hands were trembling. And they were trembling not because he was diseased. They were trembling because he was thinking of this holy thing that he was doing. And I, I envied the trembling. We can become so lackadaisical, so complacent about God. And, and the truth is, God is difficult enough, elusive enough, that it's not surprising that we settle for so little, that we don't push through these words to know the God that they speak of. And so again, that's the response of the religious elites. They, they know all the right answers, and yet they make no effort to join the wise men. They make no effort to pay the Christ child homage. Now, of course, that brings us to the wise men who serve as our example. The wise men, they hear the news. They head out to Bethlehem. The scriptures tell us that the star stops over the place where Jesus was. And the wise men, they are, they are overwhelmed with joy. They enter the house they see Mary with Jesus, and they kneel down in homage, 
offering their gifts to him. So first, they are filled with joy. Joy because they have found what they're seeking for. Frederick Nietzsche, I think, spoke the, the, the most damning critique of the church when he said, Christians have no joy. That's probably the worst thing people can say about us, that we have no, no joy. I mean, we are first and foremost to be people of joy. Joy because of what God has done, is doing. Joy because of who God is. Not that we don't have, have sadness at times, but this joy should be present and should, should come to the surface at times, especially in worship. Christ brings joy. Then we're told that they pay him homage. The wise men bow down. And, and what the wise men recognize in Jesus is obviously just a fraction of what we, we recognize after the resurrection, after 2,000 years of Christian history. In Christ, we, we see the, the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And, and I think if we see that, if we, if we really see it and recognize it, we will worship him. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about worship, he says it's like the woman who broke that jar of expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet. And he says that when we worship, we are, are breaking open our hearts to pour them out over Jesus. In praise and in, in worship, we surrender to this one that we meet in Jesus who is good and gracious. So joy and worship, and then finally, they open their treasure chests and they give Christ their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, such expensive gifts, the best gifts that they could bring. I remember talking to a woman right after a service one time and she told me that she thought the service was wonderful. And I said, I'm, I'm so glad you liked the service. And then she said, you know, you know what I felt like doing? I felt so grateful that when the offertory plate came to me, I felt like jumping into the plate. In our gratitude, we offer ourselves to God. We offer our, our, our jobs, our intellects, our politics, everything. We offer them to the Christ child. And, and, and Richard Mao says we lay them at his feet so that he might break them. Break them, not in the sense of destroying them, but, but break them in the sense that you break in a horse. Tame them. T take my job, take my money, take my intellect, take my family, take everything I do and, and break them so that they are tamed and will do your doing and be obedient to your will. The magi, these wise men, they model for us what a faithful response to Christ looks like. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.